ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Hello and welcome to The World Today. It's Monday the 15th of January. I'm Samantha Donovan coming to you from the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation in Melbourne. This Monday, a mission to the Middle East. The Foreign Minister Penny Wong flies to the embattled region as fallout from the Gaza war spills across borders. And scientists detect several new recreational drugs in Canberra, the worrying find sparking fresh calls for more pill testing services. With the influx of these research chemicals, which is something that we haven't really seen so much before previously, and also all of these ketamine analogues, that is concerning. And we have to rethink how we approach this. First today, the Foreign Minister Penny Wong is travelling to the Middle East, where she'll be advocating for a sustainable ceasefire in the Israel-Gaza war. It's expected Senator Wong will meet with her counterparts in Jordan, Israel, the West Bank and the United Arab Emirates. As Flint Duxfield reports, today marks 100 days since the outbreak of the conflict on October the 7th. In the shell-shock ruins of an apartment block in Gaza City, Mohammed Abu Awaidar pours through the rubble of his former home. After 100 days of war, I come here every day. We still have three children remaining under the rubble, Omar, Abdullah and Massa, in hope one can pull out their bodies, and we pray to God that we will be able to pull them out and see them. 22 of his family members were killed in the strikes, which have now claimed nearly 24,000 Palestinian lives and displaced almost 2 million people, leaving the territory in a humanitarian crisis. 50 kilometres north in Israel, the brother of an Israeli hostage, Shaguki Banyamin, is one of thousands who gathered to protest Hamas's refusal to release the estimated 130 Israelis still being held in Gaza since the October 7th attack, which killed 1,200 Israeli civilians. It's very difficult for the family, for the children, for everybody, and we hope to bring him back. Today, Foreign Minister Penny Wong is travelling to the region, the first visit to Israel by an Australian foreign minister since 2016, and the most senior Australian official to tour the region since the conflict broke out in October. Australia is not a central player uh, in the Middle East, but we are a respected voice. And I'll be using our voice uh, to advocate for a pathway out of this conflict. But what influence Australia can have on the pathway to peace is unclear. Senior lecturer in peace and conflict studies at Sydney University, Eyal Mayroz, says while the US is the only country with real influence in the region, Australia's contribution should not be ignored. And the more countries take a firmer position, the more there is chance that uh, Israel uh, will be forced to reckon with uh, with this uh, international stance. The visit comes as Labor MP Julian Hill has called on the government to consider making it illegal for Australians to fund settlement activity in the Palestinian West Bank Territory and to ban Israeli settlers from visiting Australia. Ian Palmiter is a former Australian ambassador to Lebanon and a Middle East specialist at ANU. That won't um, impress the current Israeli government, but there will be a lot of pressure from the left wing of the Labour Party to, uh, to take some action in, in, in that respect. 
Senator Wong's visit also comes amid rising fears of an escalating regional conflict. The US and UK have recently launched airstrikes on dozens of targets in Yemen in an effort to prevent Houthi rebels continuing their attacks on cargo ships travelling to Israel. It's a move which risks further antagonising Iran, which has long supported the Houthis in their bid to maintain control over the fractured country. But it's unclear whether the strikes will do anything to temper the Houthi attacks. Nadwa al-Dosari is a non-resident scholar at the Middle East Institute in Washington, D.C. The U.S. and the U.K. and, um, and their partners are making a miscalculation here. The Houthis have survived eight years of airstrikes by the Saudis and the Emiratis, and they emerged stronger. Tactical approach like this is not going to address the problem. Australia has so far provided modest support for the US-led efforts to restrain the Houthis in the form of personnel in the operational headquarters. But Prime Minister Anthony Albanese has rejected suggestions that Australia is punching below its weight, saying Australia's focus should remain on the Indo-Pacific. We had people before uh, the Houthi attacks. Since then, we've increased the number of personnel that are involved in that operation. Senator Wong is expected to visit Israel, Jordan, the UAE and the West Bank Palestinian Territory. Flint Duxfield reporting. In Denmark, the reign of King Frederick X has begun with Australian-born Queen Mary by his side. A huge crowd braved the freezing temperatures in Copenhagen to see the Danish Prime Minister proclaim the new king, who's assuming the role after the abdication of his mother, Queen Margrethe. This report from Alexandra Humphreys. On a frosty day in central Copenhagen, thousands gathered at Christiansborg Palace as King Frederick X ascended to the throne. It was a straightforward ceremony. Despite that, the new king was visibly emotional before addressing the jubilant crowd below. Today, the throne is passed on. My hope is to become a unifying king of tomorrow. It is a task I've approached all my life. It is a task I take on with pride, respect and great joy. The new king spoke fondly of his wife, Australian-born Mary Donaldson, former real estate manager and now queen consort. I will need all the support I can get from my beloved wife, from my family, from you and from that which is greater than us. When Queen Mary appeared on the balcony sharing a kiss with her husband, the crowd erupted. It's not just Danes who are enamoured with their new queen. Hobartians are also proud of the girl from Tassie. Well, I think it's a pretty cool thing for a person from Tasmania to rise to the heights. Um, I, as I said, not really a, a royalist, but I just think that we can all bask in our little Tassie 15 minutes of fame. For Denmark to have an Australian princess, an Australian-born lady, is fabulous. Juliet Reardon is an author and editor-at-large at the Australian Women's Weekly. She was surprised by the level of emotion on display during the proclamation. She gave a wonderful speech um, and the sea of people... Uh, all, all over really um, brought tears to his eyes. And I think he was very surprised to see that uh, and very heartened. Queen Margrethe has become the first Danish monarch to resign in almost 900 years, the 83-year-old monarch making way for her son to rule. I think um, 
it was it was a very bold act by Queen Margaretta to hand over to her son and or, and his wife, you know, Queen Mary, our Queen Mary, who were very very popular in Denmark and obviously very vital and energetic and have a lot to give. Here's royal commentator Afia Hagen. The Danish royal family enjoy pretty high approval ratings, around 85% across the country. If you compare that to around 50 or 60% for the British royal family, they are pretty inoffensive. People seem to like them. Jesper Steinmetz is a Danish journalist. He expects Queen Mary will be crucial to King Frederick's future popularity. I can't think of any uh, missteps uh, she's taken. She has basically made the now King Frederick better uh, by being uh, by his side. He has had a uh, an image of uh, sometimes just showing on up unprepared, especially before he met her. And she's definitely changed that. She's definitely um, made him aware that he should treat this position with respect. Frederick and Mary's eldest son, 18-year-old Christian, has become crown prince and heir to the throne. Alexandra Humphreys. In the United States, the Republican Party's bid to reclaim the White House is getting down to serious business with the start of the Iowa caucuses. They're like neighbourhood meetings where voters pick their preferred candidate for president. More than 1,600 caucuses will be held in the Midwestern state on Monday and the leading candidates are hoping the record-breaking cold won't deter Republicans from coming out. The former president, Donald Trump, is still the hot favourite to be the party's nominee, but his rivals say re-electing him would be dangerous. This report from Jacqueline Breen. This is Iowa's news leader. Tonight, breaking news as we come on the air. Dangerous weather taking a toll. The extreme cold snap forcing millions indoors. There's an Arctic chill in Iowa, even as the race for president heats up. The temperature is minus 25 degrees Celsius and worse with the wind chill. But these supporters braved the blizzard and dangerous icy roads to turn out for Donald Trump. In the coming hours, Iowans will cast the first votes in the months-long process that will eventually produce the Republican nominee for president. It's almost inconceivable that he does not win this and probably by a big margin. EJ Dion is a senior fellow at the Brookings Institute and a columnist for The Washington Post. Iowa is going through an extraordinary blizzard uh, and it's going to be the turnout uh, could be very, very low. Having said all that, Trump's uh, supporters are very dedicated. The real question for the race going forward is the race for second place. That contest is between Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and former UN Ambassador Nikki Haley, who's just pulled ahead in the polls. DeSantis has vowed to fight on whatever the result. But E.J. Dion says he's failed to win over the Republican right, which remains rusted on with Trump. On the Haley side, I think she has found, walked this very careful line. She has said good things about Trump. Um, She said she was proud to serve as his administration, but now it was time to move on. Um, And what she's banking on is that there's not an anti-Trump majority in the Republican Party, but again, as my pollster friend Christine Solis Anderson said, there may be, just may be room for a beyond Trump majority. And that's 
what she's going for. In recent months, commentators have noted with alarm the often extreme rhetoric from Donald Trump beginning to take an even darker turn. He described his rivals as vermin and has said migrants were poisoning the blood of the country. At the Iowa rally, he said the deportations of migrants crossing the border from Mexico would start on day one if he retook the White House. We're taking in people from prisons. We're taking in people from mental institutions. We're taking in people that are very, very sick with diseases that will be spread all over our nation. In the coming weeks and months, the former president will be back and forth between the campaign trail and the courtroom, where he's fighting four separate indictments. The Trump camp spins them as an electoral advantage, calling it all politically motivated. But E.J. Dion says they're also trying to put them off. In theory, the trials uh, could start as soon as a couple of months from now. In practice, Trump and his lawyers are doing everything they can to delay and delay and delay. The, the question is, how long can Trump delay these trials? Most of the lawyers uh, who comment on this don't think he can delay them all till after the election, but his lawyers are doing all they can to do just that. The next poll is later this month in New Hampshire, and after that it's South Carolina, where Nikki Haley served as governor before heading to the UN. The presidential election is in November. Jacqueline Breen. On ABC Radio across Australia, streaming online and on the ABC Listen app, this is The World Today. Thanks for your company. The gap between the rich and poor in Australia is growing rapidly, according to the charity Oxfam. It found the wealth of the three richest Australians has doubled since 2020, while nearly five billion people around the world have become poorer. The finding comes as the federal government faces growing pressure to deliver more cost-of-living relief and fix the housing crisis. Here's David Taylor. You know the old saying, the rich are getting richer while the poor are getting poorer. For example, you know, in the last couple of years, the top three Australians have doubled their wealth. So billionaires are doubling that wealth, whereas the bottom two-thirds of the population are without adequate food or shelter. So this is critical. Oxfam CEO Lynn Morgan worries about the speed at which the inequality gap is widening. And she points the finger at the financial market and the growing power of the big end of town. Oftentimes, corporations receive what we call windfall benefits. That is, they're well beyond what you might expect from normal profit. And so we're saying when that happens, that money needs to be clawed back into the community in order to help the community deal with the very circumstances that created it. That's a roundabout way of saying she wants to see big corporates making unreasonably large profits provide tangible financial assistance to vulnerable Australians. These profits that are amassing, you know, not just can the individuals not spend it, but the corporations can't spend it. You know, we're talking about a number of zeros that's so inconceivable that actually that money is just sitting there. It's adding to political pressure on the Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese. He's made easing the cost of living the government's top priority. But he says the government needs to focus on ensuring it doesn't add to inflation when providing financial assistance to Australians. Uh, The fight on inflation is the number one measure. Uh, I'll be meeting with Dr Craig Emerson this morning, uh, who's been put in charge of uh, a review uh, looking at 
the retailers and looking at what can be done in that area. Oxfam says the government must consider binning the Stage 3 tax cuts, which offer relatively more income tax relief for high-income earners and kicks in on the 1st of July this year. It seems unacceptable to us that we could be giving large benefits to those who already have a great deal. To us, this is simply a very poor policy choice. Anthony Albanese says the government's position on Stage 3 tax cuts hasn't changed, which means they remain on track to be implemented. The government will continue to look at uh, the range of measures that are available at our disposal in the lead-up to the May budget. Meanwhile, Housing Minister Julie Collins was out spruiking the government's ambitious housing policies today, building 1.2 million homes over the next five years. It's a key government policy aimed at giving more Australians a shot at the great Australian dream. Well, we always said it wouldn't be easy. We said there's no silver bullet and we need to be ambitious and we are ambitious. We need to turn this around as quickly as we can and that's what we're doing. You've already seen some states and territories go out and consult on planning and zoning changes and announce some changes because we all understand that we need to be working together to turn this around. Whether it be the cost of living crisis or the housing crisis, government policy progress for charity Oxfam at least is not happening fast enough. The money is in the system. We just need more effective mechanisms to get it where it needs to go. Oxfam CEO Lynn Morgan ending David Taylor's report. At a pill testing service in Canberra, chemists have identified three new recreational drugs not seen in Australia before. Their discovery comes after eight people ended up in hospital after overdosing on MDMA, or ecstasy as it's known, at a music festival in Melbourne earlier this month. Pill testing advocates say it's all the more reason to increase the availability of testing services across the country. Eliza Getze has more. The surprise substances were discovered by chemists at the Australian National University in Canberra last year after they were taken for testing at the only fixed-site pill testing service in Australia called CanTest. Their analysis has just been published in the journal Drug Testing and Analysis. Professor Malcolm McLeod was part of the team. On site, we were able to tell the, the client that they weren't what they expected, but it took us a little while to figure out what they were because they were new. There was there was nothing in the scientific literature about these substances as uh, as drugs. One drug, thought to be the ADHD drug Ritalin, turned out to be a new variant of cathinone, sometimes nicknamed bath salts, a dangerous family of chemicals that have been known to kill people. Another can test client brought in what they thought was the increasingly popular party drug ketamine, but it was in fact a new type of stimulant often used as a substitute for MDMA. A third drug was later found to be a new type of stimulant from the phenethylamine family, not seen before on Australian shores. Like all illicit drugs, Professor McLeod says it's impossible to tell with the naked eye if it's what you think it is. Very different to the kinds of uh, images that you often see of, you know, colourful pills and stamped with different logos. The vast majority of, of substances we test are just powders or crystals, you know, white or off-white. So no distinguishing features. So it's not really very useful to look at the physical characteristics of a, of a substance. You have to do the analytical testing. At CanTest, anyone can bring in a substance to check what it is. We routinely 
routinely get alerts about high-dose MDMA pills, for example. They come out of CanTest. Uh, they also come out of the health authorities around the country. And armed with that information, people can be safer in their, in their drug use. So take lower doses, be aware of the environmental conditions, all of these sorts of considerations, which will hopefully avoid the sorts of overdoses that we saw in, in Melbourne a little over a week ago. Earlier this month in Melbourne, nine people were hospitalised after overdosing on MDMA at a music festival. They all reportedly suffered severe hypothermia or overheating, with three people in a critical condition. Caitlin Dooley is a drug and alcohol researcher at the University of New South Wales. She says a growing culture of obtaining drugs online on what's known as the dark web is fuelling these incidents as importers alter the chemistry of mainstream party drugs to reduce detection by authorities. You can be chasing that euphoric feeling that a lot of people get from MDMA but you don't get that euphoric feeling from caffeinones. And so what happens when people take caffeinones or these sort of research chemicals which mimic the effects of caffeinones and not MDMA is they redose and they redose more often and more regularly. And that has the impact of chasing that euphoric feeling while also stacking on dosages, which can lead to overdose with the influx of these research chemicals, which is something that we haven't really seen so much before previously. And also all of these ketamine analogues And with the rise in ketamine becoming a very popular sort of party drug in the last five years, that is concerning. And we have to rethink how we approach this. She says education is key to saving lives. We need to put a lot more faith in people's ability to make good choices for themselves instead of trying to regulate their behaviours because this isn't going away. And what it's really doing is driving these suppliers to make things that are very, very dangerous and sell them as something else because they don't care, they're making money and it's at the detriment of young people because that's primarily who's taking these substances. Advocates of pill testing say the discovery of the three new psychoactive drugs in Canberra highlights the need for more accessible testing services. Eliza Getzi reporting. With its soaring mountain peaks and pale blue glaciers, Antarctica is attracting a growing number of tourists. The world's only continent without a native human population is expected to have more than 100,000 visitors this tourist season. Those who make the trip often describe the experience as life-changing, but there's growing concern about their impact on the environment, as Amber Jacobs reports surreal, dreamlike, otherworldly. There are many ways to describe the world's seventh continent. Home to unique wildlife, glistening ice sheets, towering snow-capped mountains and aqua blue glaciers. Like any travel destination, Antarctica certainly has its sights. It's honestly been a truly life-changing experience. Sarah Pirinelli is Chief Design Officer in partnership with Insider Expeditions. She's just returned from a seven-day luxury cruise to Antarctica on board the World Voyager, which she helped organise. The education expeditions, the experience. We've had lectures while we're on board. Costing over $23,000, the cruise boasts of wellness experiences like yoga, gong baths, breathwork and ice plungers. And Sarah Pirinelli says the company seeks to visit the continent the right way. We've had to work with our providers to get various approvals to do things, to make sure that everything is really keeping in mind the actual location that we're in. Travel to Antarctica has been on the rise in recent decades, increasing tenfold between 1992 and 2020. 
And according to the International Association of Antarctica Tour Operators, or IATO, more than 100,000 people visited the icy continent last season. And they're expecting similar numbers this season. Elizabeth Lean, Professor of Antarctic Studies at the University of Tasmania, says there's already evidence human activity is affecting Antarctica's native animals and environment. There's definitely things like whale strikes. There is evidence of some disturbance to the animals in the continent. Sometimes they might, for example, desert their nest um, because of human interaction. Antarctica is home to 1,100 species, including seals, whales, penguins and krill. Antarctica is regulated under the Antarctic Treaty System, which dozens of countries are party to, including Australia. Donald Rothwell is Professor of International Law at the Australian National University. There's many, many multinational global issues that are associated with the, the regulation of Antarctic tourism. In 2022, signatories to the Antarctic Treaty adopted a non-binding resolution opposing permanent tourist facilities. This means there are no hotels or restaurants on the continent. But as Professor Rothwell points out, not all tourism operators that visit the continent are based in countries signed up to the treaty system. Not all Antarctic tourism operators operate out of Australia. They operate from multiple countries around the world. And of course, their passengers come from all over the globe. The Australian Antarctic Program says Antarctic tourism is a legitimate activity, provided it's conducted safely in an environmentally responsible manner. Amber Jacobs reporting. And that's The World Today for this Monday. Thanks for your company. I'm Samantha Donovan.